Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Political power is a fundamental determinant of health equity. Those words make up the opening sentence of the article we're going to discuss today. Now, last December, we published a paper by Tony Eiton and co-authors, which defined community power as the ability of people facing similar circumstances to develop, sustain, and grow an organized base of people to set agendas and shift public discourse. Today, we'll talk about a specific dimension of community power, which is tenant organizing. What are the connections among community power, housing, and health? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Jamila Michener, Associate Professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University. Dr. Michener and co-authors published a paper in the October 2023 issue of Health Affairs examining community power in the form of tenant organizing among racially and economically marginalized communities. Through a series of semi-structured interviews of tenants, they found that organizing can advance health equity within communities, but also that an understanding of power and power building are necessary if we want to advance policy and promote change. We'll discuss these topics in today's episode. Dr. Michener, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I find your paper really interesting, both because of its findings, which are always a place that we look for in health affairs, but also because of the way you approach the topic. So just to let our listeners in on sort of the framing of the paper, can you start by explaining to us why housing and in particular tenant organizing, the focus of your paper, is a useful lens for examining the intersection of racism, power, and health equity? Sure. You know, racism, power, health equity, these are sort of big daunting concepts And when we think about them in the abstract, there are times, honestly, when it can feel like, what are we really talking about? And I think what it does to focus on something like housing is it really brings us to the concrete, to the kind of material stakes of these big, important concepts that are actually things that are operating in people's lives. So if you think about racism, housing has been a forte where racism has really been able to operate. We understand that racism, for example, is institutional. It's not just about what's in people's hearts and minds. But what does that really mean? And in the sphere of housing, we get to see what that really means over time historically and also contemporarily. We see processes like redlining, restrictive covenants, residential segregation, um, discrimination in lending, and so on and so forth that explain why many times when we're driving through a neighborhood, it's predominantly one race. And so there are all of these ways that racism is operating through housing as a domain. And focusing on housing helps us to get to that particular. Uh, Similarly, if we think about housing in relation to power, there are really clear power dynamics that emerge in the sphere of housing. Um, There are, you know, there's divides between renters and owners, but also between renters and landlords. And so there are all of these opportunities to explore how power operates in the context of racism when we look at housing. And that last component, health equity, is probably the most critical. Housing is such a critical determinant of health um, in ways that when your housing situation is fine, you may not realize how much of a boon that is to your health. But when you have mold or asbestos or your children 
end up with lead poisoning, or you have to worry about your housing so much that you find yourself in the throes of depression, and so on and so forth. The list is almost endless um, of the ways that housing situations can directly and indirectly imperil people's physical and mental health. So realize that if we want to take this intersection of racism, power, and health equity and bring it to life in a way that's concrete so that we can start to understand its dynamics, housing is a sort of ideal space to do that. Well, I kept finding myself wanting to say yes, 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 while I was listening to you. So I totally agree with you. We really need to find concrete examples to move beyond these concepts that can be quite daunting. We've published, of course, a lot in health affairs about the relationship between housing and health. So that's clear. And that then gets into the power dynamics. And you mentioned a a litany of structural conditions that are tied to racism that affect housing. I would only add zoning uh, to your list as I was listening, um, which also plays a big role. But what I was struck by as I read the paper, because I feel like I know these concepts reasonably well, I work with them a lot, is I hadn't thought as much as you clearly state in the paper about the power dynamics in the tenant-landlord relationship. And so we talk a lot about sort of housing instability. We talk a lot about housing cost, affordability, and, you know, the burdens it places on people's health and their ability to afford other things. But you really present this as sort of a, a, a power dynamic with tenants who tend to have limited political power on one side. And landlords, we I, I rent Currently, I know what it's like to be on the other side of the landlord, but you also mentioned investors and you mentioned the political processes, the the local housing authority. So that just opened my eyes to uh, not just a cost issue, but a power issue. Can you say a little more about how you think about the power dynamics in this context? Absolutely. And I will admit that a lot of my insights around this really came from talking to people and realizing how much they were experiencing these dynamics in their daily lives. But there's this range of actors in the housing space that, and all all of whom can end up having quite a bit of control over the the experiences that renters have. Um, It's worth pointing out that About 45% of rental units in the country are under the control of sort of corporate landlords. So these are entities that are in the business of making a profit. And while that's part and parcel of our political economy in the U.S., it, it comes with consequences. It means, for example, many people are facing sort of substandard housing conditions. And what do you do when that situation emerges? If something really expensive breaks in your building, it may not be in your landlord's best interest to fix it or to fix it well. And what power and leverage do renters have? That really varies across states. On the national level, we actually have very few protections for tenants. We, it, there, it, there isn't much policy that gives tenants, national policy that gives tenants leverage against their landlords, Right. And on the state level, it very much varies. Even in states like the state where I live, New York, where there are strong tenant protections, there's a difference between having those on the books and actually having them implemented. Many tenant protections don't have teeth. And code enforcement agencies and housing authorities, the the actors that we think would be um, there to protect and, and look out for tenants often are underfunded, right? 
So from the top, the national level policy, all the way through the state and local policy, there are limited avenues for tenants to be protected. And it takes, it's very hard to regulate landlords, whether they're mom and pop individual private landlords or corporate landlords. This is a country where we want, we, we value free enterprise. And sometimes that means that we don't want to limit people um, and institutions that are seeking to make a profit through different arenas. And housing is a primary arena. I mean, people think about housing as a wealth generation tool. Um, and that has implications for the people who aren't generating wealth through housing, but are simply trying to live and survive. And so there are all sorts of constraints on, on tenants in terms of how they can, in, how they interface with their landlords. And they also have a lot to risk, right? Um, they can't just withhold their rent because they'll risk being evicted. Um, and many of the people that we're talking about when we talk about tenants, not all, but many are economically vulnerable. Um, and so that kind of power imbalance where you have a disproportionate group of people who are economically vulnerable, racially marginalized, precarious in a variety of ways, and they're facing people or institutions that have more than them and that perhaps have incentives not to be responsive to their needs. That is a kind of uh, a built-in contradiction in the landlord-tenant relationship that creates lots of room for uh, power struggle. Well, I could talk to you about the concepts here all day, but let's. Uh, there's an empirical element to this paper. So just before we get too far in, you spoke with tenants and you found in your interviews sort of two what you called overlapping but distinct strategies that they employed to achieve uh, change. If you could just tee those up and then we'll dive deeper into them. Yeah. So uh, these are there are other strategies, but these are sort of the two primary strategies that emerged when I was interviewing people. Um, and one is direct action, which is doing kind of taking action very directly to solve concrete problems that tenants are facing. And the idea here is an individual tenant against their landlord has very little leverage if they have mold in their apartment, if the elevator is broken and their child in the wheelchair can't get up to the top floor. But if that tenant organizes, if they say, well, wait, if the elevator is broken, a lot of people in the building are suffering. Can we get together with our neighbors? Can we operate through organizations like tenant organizations to channel our power and grow our power in relation to the landlord? If there are 20 of us, if our, there are 30 of us, if we identify every building that the landlord owns and we bring more and more people to the table, and then we can work together and we can, we can say, okay, not only are there more of us, but maybe we'll withhold our rent. Maybe we'll protest outside of your corporate building. Those are sort of direct ways, things like rent strikes and protests, direct ways of saying to, of tenants coming together and saying to landlords, this is what we need. And often that direct action is for very basic things. There are, the people are like, we just don't want to be breathing in mold. We want the water to be working in our showers. We want our toilets to be able to be flushed. These are things that we assume tenants have by virtue of the fact that they're paying rent but many of them do not. And so they have to organize together. And direct action is about meeting those most direct and concrete goals quite often. Um, and it seems really simple. And, but often these very simple moves, getting together and protesting in front of your landlord's building, for example, can create scenarios where landlords now have pressure on them. Maybe there, there's media there and they don't want that 
that bad um, that bad press. Maybe they simply didn't realize the the scale of the problem, and now they have to confront that. They can no longer ignore each individual complaint that comes to them. And so direct action is really a way of taking immediate steps to solve concrete problems. And often these problems are health-threatening, which is why it's important to think about them in the context of health equity. And the other theme you found? Yeah. So the other theme was policy campaigns, right? And so direct action doesn't always have to involve like a larger policy goal, right? It may not be that you want to change the larger policy context for all renters. You may just want the elevator in that building fixed, um, which is fair and is important for people. But a a larger set of goals around policy campaigns are, are important. It helps tenants to push for sort of the bigger picture instead of fighting landlord by landlord or building by building, which can be exhausting and can also sometimes uh, only address problems in the most direct and minimal way, policy campaigns say, hey, maybe we can make it so that no landlord can do this in our city. No landlord cannot have running water in the city or all landlords that have lead or asbestos. Well, those things are all, already against the law. But you might want to have a policy campaign around implementation of those better enforcement of those laws. In the paper, I use the example of a policy campaign around uh, a city that was really, uh, tenants were really looking to have a certain management company that was managing the city's public housing removed because they had been managing the public housing for a long time. And it was well known among tenants that they were pretty predatory and that they were not treating tenants well. And so tenants got together and said, we don't want this to be the company that's managing our public housing. And initially the city was like, well, this is the company we have the contract with. But by working together, collectively, they were able to get that management company removed. And then even to have sort of a say over the process that unfolded thereafter in terms of what the new management was going to look like, that had implications for thousands of tenants throughout the city. And so a larger policy campaign can be can have a kind of bigger target and bigger impacts that way. Well, I want to talk to you about these two strategies and how they relate and uh, how people choose which one to take. Uh, We'll cover some of those topics after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Jamila Michener about racism, power, and health equity. We're talking about tenant organizing. And before the break, uh, we were discussing the findings presented in the paper, talking to tenants. Uh, Dr. Michener found these two strategies, one around direct action and the other political uh, results. And of course, as you note in the paper, they're overlapping. Uh, There's a there's no f- firm boundary between them, but uh, maybe we think of them as a continuum between solving individual problems and solving systemic problems. And that really brings me back to the theme of racism and power, because those are systemic issues, as you discussed. And so um, what I'm interested in is understanding a little bit more based on the conversations you had with tenants about the choices they made and the implications of those choices. So one observation you made in the paper, and I know it's not a quantitative analysis, but this is clearly a, a, a conclusion you drew from the from the interviews you uh, had, that 
Direct action was the preferred approach when people felt they were marginalized in local politics. And at one level, you say, well, okay, that's kind of obvious. You're not going to take a political strategy if you're politically marginalized. But uh, but I think your uh, observation is more complex than that. So I'm going to ask you to uh, describe it in a little more detail and maybe uh, what evidence you had behind that that led you to that conclusion, because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, well, tenants are are savvy, right? So they're not just sort of doing things out of, because there are grievances, you just do something. You really look at the landscape as a tenant organization and think, what can we do within this particular political landscape? And often, for example, you might assess that landscape as being a landscape that is inflected with racism, let's say. So there was one person I interviewed in a large southern city who said, look, we're a large southern city. Mostly, most tenants are black. Um, our state legislature does not respond well to the city. And our, our city council members realize this. They're not going to pass policies that tenants really want, um, both because of their own racism and because if they pass the policies that we really want, they'll get they'll end up getting preempted at the state level, right? So there's this analysis of what state and local politics are like and the constraints that creates, right? And sometimes those constraints are pretty directly around a sense that there's there's racism that is operating within these institutions. Um, and so people make the choice, you know, I don't actually think I can influence my state legislature or my city council member, not in the short term, at least. And so people have immediate needs. We can focus on this landlord, on this building, right? Now, many people don't think of that as the end game, right? And in the medium to long term, they do actually want to try to build power that allows them to influence their local city council or their state legislature. But in the short term, they also want to be acting in ways uh, that are effective. And so they assess the political environment and the constraints in it and choose between sort of direct action by itself or you know, whether they're going to go for these larger policy campaigns based on their assessment of the political environment. It makes so much sense. And I like where you started. Uh, tenants are savvy. They, their lives are at stake here. And so, and their resources to respond to circumstances are very limited. If you're not strategic about where you put those resources, you, you, you're going to waste energy that you don't have. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, you also made a comment in the discussion section of the paper uh, that that really popped out for me, where you said we need to challenge the narrative of assuming that political elites are the key actors. And I just want to step back as I ask you more about that. I mean, that's so common in the sort of health space that everyone's saying, how do I get this information or this idea in front of Congress, in front of the legislature, in front of the people who run health systems? I would say at health affairs, we often are asking the question, how do we get this in front of the decision makers? And you said, you know, maybe we need to not just think about the political elites as the key actors. Uh, Say a little more about, again, what you were thinking there and what was behind that statement. Sure. I mean, of course, political elites are important. And even tenant organizations understand this sometimes. They are sometimes trying to get in front of, of political elites. But I think the core instinct is to have a sort of primarily elite-oriented stance when we think about processes for political change really obscures a lot. It obscures the role that um, that grassroots organizations and ordinary people, when they act collectively, p- can play in the political process. 
And it means that we're blind to the work that is happening in many communities, the efforts that are unfolding in those communities. And we can't think about then how to incorporate those efforts into our own efforts to advance change, right? And I have felt this myself in my own work. Look, if you go and you testify before Congress, which I've done before, or you testify before your state legislature, which I've done before, it's great. But you go home and what has come from that? It's not to say that it doesn't matter, but there are many other steps that it takes to get from getting in the air or before a political elite and actually seeing change happen. Um, And ordinary people who have the most at stake, who understand the problems most intently and who have the most incentive to see change happen because they're the ones suffering in the face of the status quo can play a huge role in moving from, well, this, this legislator now understands the problem to, no, you have to change something because they can create pressure. They can change the discourse. There are all sorts of things that they can do. And I just think often, either implicitly or explicitly, our theories of change that are sort of running in our mind don't include these folks as central actors. And it really limits our, our political imagination. And I think we're in a place um, when it comes to health equity and when it comes to our, our current political system where we need to be creative, we need to be innovative. And we're not going to do that if we're looking at the same actors in the same processes all the time. We have to expand the ambit of who we are attentive to. And that was really the larger point I was making. So as we come toward the end, I actually want to ask a question that I think goes beyond the paper. I don't remember seeing it there. And forgive me for sort of throwing this out at you with no warning. But as I listen to your answer to the last question, I'm thinking about two dimensions of power building and their effects on health. So the one we focused this entire conversation on is what I would call sort of the instrumental concrete one, which is you have, you don't have hot water uh, to live a healthy life. You need hot water. You need to advocate and find the best process for how to get your hot water. And when you have hot water, your health is going to be better because you can take better care of yourself. But uh, the Eiden paper and other work in that vein talks also about this from sort of the health benefits of empowerment per se, not the fact that you have water, but that you have agency, that you realize that you're not powerless in this situation, that you build connections with other community members who also may feel disempowered, but you realize that together you can make things happen, that that actually has health benefits in addition to sort of the tangible ones. So given that you conducted these interviews, and I know they were over an extended period and for multiple reasons, that didn't seem to me the focus of this paper. But I wondered if you could give me some observations from those conversations about that side of community power and effects on health. Absolutely. And I love this question because I'm actually working on a separate paper (laughs) that looks at just at this. And one of the things that struck me interviewing people is when I would interview people who were not a part of tenant organizations, but who were facing these same problems. So they were facing the difficult problems, but hadn't found a way to collectively act in response to them. And so many people express a feeling of powerlessness. And often what I realize is as they're expressing a feeling of powerlessness, they would talk about their their emotional and mental health and sometimes even talk about their physical health. Um, so it's very clear to me that those linkages exist as well um, because being um, or feeling powerless um, is, not, is not a place where people 
enjoy existing, right? Especially when there is so much at stake. I mean, um, often when I would interview parents who would talk about their housing situations endangering their children's health in like a very direct way, they then talk about their own mental and emotional health as a sort of indirect consequence of that. And it was connected to the notion of, I don't even have the power to protect my children. And that sense of powerlessness, I think, pervades um, or, and affects every kind of health. Um, and, and it doesn't need to happen because you're uh, ingesting lead paint, right? It can be because you're in a situation that you feel there's no way out of. Um, so absolutely, I think those linkages between power um, and health equity and housing are really multifaceted. And I love that you highlighted yet another facet there. Well, Dr. Mishner, I can't wait to read that next paper. Uh, obviously, I have an interest in it. Thank you so much for this work, for explaining it, uh, and for bringing, as you said at the outset, a specific example that helps us understand these concepts that I think we are at a stage where we've got to move beyond the broad words and terms that are very useful, but put them in uh, spaces that are meaningful, and this is definitely one of them. So thank you for the paper, the discussion. Thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thank you for having me. This was a really great discussion, and I'm appreciative of, of creating a, a forum for this kind of dialogue. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about the health policy.